Hello, and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Kate Wolf, and I'm joined in the studio today by my co-host, managing editor of LARB, Medea Ocher. Hi, Kate. Hi, Medea. How you doing? I'm okay. How are you? Pretty good. How do you feel? Jet-lagged? I feel jet-lagged. I did just come back from a trip. Technically, I think my time right now is the opposite of LA time. So I think right now it's evening for me. So I feel fine. Maybe a little sleepy. I see. Anyway. Back to the present time. We're speaking with Shelley Oria about her new anthology, Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement. Yeah, this doesn't sound like it would be a fun conversation, but I actually had a lot of fun talking to Shelley. (laughs) Yeah, as as did I. She's very funny. And it's a very varied collection, we should say. It's not just essays about the Me Too movement. It's fiction. It's poetry. It's ways of discussing this political and social reality that we have that I think not that many books or publications have approached in a similar way. So it's an interesting new addition to the conversation. How do you feel about the Me Too movement, Kate? Has it gone too far? Oh, my God. (laughs) Funny you should ask, because I just recently had my first like major Me Too experience where I tried to... Well, I should probably shouldn't get into this on air, but I, I tried to, let's just say I tried to become an activist in some ways. And I oh. wrote a letter. And and how did it go? You know, it made me see, wow, there's Me Too movement still has a ways to go because nothing has happened yet at all. And mm-hmm. was your decision to become an activist partly inspired by <laughs> personal experience? Or oh, was okay, it by personal experience. Yeah. I thought you were say by, um, by this by book. book. No. <laughs> by, this, by this conversation. Yeah. I mean, it, it was... Or was it a larger political movement that you're I mean, joining? no, it started off like just in defense of a friend's reputation. Okay. And then it from there, I, you know, because I had to think about, oh, what are the implications? What's going to happen? I tried to talk to some lawyers. Like, right. I had some people who were saying, this is going too far. This is not the right way. And um, so through those conversations, I did actually think about it more and yeah now I think I'm sure if if things had gone down as I imagined like oh this letter would be sent and then suddenly like things would have changed I I might feel differently but because nothing has happened so far I feel like oh yeah this movement still has a ways to go wow but it was interesting right like to read this book and then have all these things happen and yeah yeah so I'm hopeful but let's listen back to the conversation we had with Shelly and so we don't have to be so opaque. Yes, we'll, we'll get into that. it more. I think that's a great idea. Okay. okay. We have Shelley Oria in the studio with us today. Shelley is the author of New York One, Tel Aviv Zero, which was published by FSG in 2014. She recently co-authored a digital novella called Clean. I'm very interested in. Oria's fiction has appeared in the Paris Review, among other places, and has won a number of awards. Oria lives in Brooklyn, New York, so it's very kind of her to join us in Los Angeles. <laughs> and in Brooklyn, New York, she teaches at the Pratt Institute and has a private practice as a life and creativity coach. Oria's latest book is called Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement. She is the editor of this book. It is a multi-genre anthology based around the Me Too movement. I wrongly called it an essay collection earlier. (laughs) It is not that. It does, in fact, encompass a number of genres. Thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. So, Shelley, you started collecting the pieces for this book 
very soon after. Days, days after Harvey. Days after Mm -hmm. Harvey. So that's bold to me because it would seem, you know, it's so hard to even like encapsulate a moment as it's happening, Mm -hmm. you know, and to kind of know where it was going. But it sparked something in you immediately. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I think whenever I sort of think of the origin story of this book, I sort of want to think that I was very brave and all kinds of things that you just insinuated. I want to take all kinds of credit that I don't think I totally deserve. This unfolded as life does. Me Too happened. We were all having, everyone I know was having so many feelings. I had happened to have finished a short story, the one that's in the book called But We Will Win, maybe a week before. Because as I think many women and women writers know, and many writers in general, we've been writing about Me Too before we called it that, or Mm -hmm. at least before many of us called it that. And so I just happened to have had that story. And I thought Me Too was going to be about a five-minute thing. I think most of us did. Who would have believed? That's one of the most optimistic things I can say about our world right now is the fact that it has been two years and is growing and we're still having this conversation and now books are coming out. But at the time, I assumed it would really be a very short thing and no one, sort of the hashtag would stop trending. No one would talk about it very soon. And I was kind of being a writer. I mean, I could say an opportunist. I could just say a writer trying to take care of all her babies. And I was like, okay, this is timely. Let's get this out. So I emailed a few editors. And one of them was Christina Kearns, who was then the executive director of McSweeney's. She said, yes, I want to publish it. But also, what a world. And we just started talking about everything that was going on. We started exchanging a lot of emails. And very soon she was saying, I think we should do a book. And we got on a call days after and she asked me if I would be the editor. So that's how the project started. In the introduction, you referenced this discussion that you had with Christina and kind of talking about the place of art in a movement or in art and politics and how those overlap and what the responsibility of literature is. I was curious if more of the conversation that didn't totally make it into the book, if you could share anything more about what you guys decided or what you thought. <laughs> the I role, don't know the that I is. have any sort of secretive parts okay. of that conversation <laughs> that I can share with listeners. But I will say another part that's relevant to this, which Medea also sort of referenced by talking about the genre distinction, and which I do talk briefly about in the forward to the book is the idea of including not only essays. For reasons not entirely clear to me, we generally respond as a society, as a culture, to timely manners if it's an anthology, maybe even in the first sort of books out the gate, but certainly when it's an anthology and nonfiction, meaning an anthology of essays, which is why it's been fascinating. Like Even people who have read the book, even when I'll do an intro on stage and be like, this is a multi-genre, later people will be like, so about this book of essays, and I very often have to say, and stories and poems. And so it's so uncommon. And I do think that that is, to me, super important. That's part of it. When we think about the responsibility of art, how do we respond as a culture to a conversation? There's so much that I can say about that, but one, maybe the most obvious thing, but that I think sometimes people don't think about, is just the voices that we exclude from the conversation only by the nature of saying, we're going to have an anthology of essays, we're going to publish nonfiction, because there's so many poets and so many fiction writers who don't write nonfiction or certainly wouldn't feel comfortable making work in that genre that isn't their main genre. So even if they written a few essays, they wouldn't write about Me Too. And so we're kind of excluding so many important voices from the conversation. And that's only really one aspect of it. The other is, I think, how a reader or viewer or listener receives a work and how do we receive an essay, which is also extremely important, which is why they're a big, big part. Essays are a big, big part of this book. But how we receive fiction or poetry is a differently textured experience, I think. I mean, and it is interesting that 
that you say that, and, and I also made that mistake having, again, having read the book, and <laughs> know that it's not <laughs> essays, because one of the things that is a part of this movement is how truth comes to light, mm-hmm. right? How do we communicate what has occurred? And that one of those ways doesn't necessarily have to be an essay or nonfiction. Truth can come out very much from a poem, right? Oh, absolutely. And I think yeah. this is... The way you phrased the question also reminded me of one of the reasons, the personal slash selfish reasons I keep reminding people that this isn't only a book of essays is because my own short story in the book has a narrator that murders men, which I swear is not a thing <laughs> that I do or ever plan to do or condone. Um, if you do, this is this is the time to confess. <laughs> <laughs> Anything that happens at large stays at yeah. large. Um, no, I swear that is not even, not only that, but also I think of... What was important to me about that story is both to touch on the rage and the anger and what do we do with that and to find a way through fiction. And that touches exactly on your point. I would not be able to do that in that same way. I could write an essay about rage and women's rage and the rage that I feel in the streets of New York every day, multiple times a day when I'm being harassed and I don't want to respond because that's unsafe or because I've learned that it's not worth it. And that rage goes to my body. I have to do work to then release that rage. Or I could write an essay about that. It might even be an okay essay. It wouldn't be what I was trying to get at. And there's a way, at least for me, and I think for many fiction writers, for many poets, that that's a different way of processing, expressing that experience and reaching someone on the other side. The other part of that story for me is that, which is sort of reductive and prescriptive is a word I cannot say in my second language, but let's pretend I just express that okay. But I will still say it, even though it is those things, is that to me, it's also a metaphor for this kind of idea of radical feminism of Mm -hmm. maybe we just have to start over. Maybe there isn't a way to fix this within given structures. Maybe we have to dismantle in order to make room for the new. And that to me, what that story is asking. Again, of course, I could write an essay about those questions. To me, that is so much, for my kind of writing, that is so much less interesting, less complex Mm -hmm. in terms of what I can bring to a piece and how we engage with those questions. Something you referenced in the introduction is this idea that trauma can be very difficult to give language to. Mm -hmm. And so I think some of the essays in here also don't take typical, they're formally interesting because they don't just tell the story. So maybe you could talk about some of the structures of essays that struck you in the book or, you know, the structure of general and some of these stories Mm -hmm. that aren't just stories of women being assaulted. Oh, yeah. I think that so one thing that was very important for us, all kinds of diversity, I think, are kind of on the page in this book. But one type of diversity was also stylistic diversity. So writers coming at this topic in different ways. And so we do have sort of essays that are more think pieces. I think that's part of what you're referring to, like pieces that are less about the personal trauma that or the personal experience even of the speaker, which is always in this sort of periphery of the text. But some of these pieces aren't what they're putting in the forefront is let me fuck with your mind like let me make you think about something in a new way I'm thinking of Sarita McFadden's piece in the book for instance and then there's so many that are about more of sort of putting in the forefront a personal trauma a personal experience and even within that what you referenced is what is the lens that we're looking at that through and where did that experience happen so for instance I think Diana Speckler's piece, which is more like vignettes, a lot more lyric essay than, say, 
even though I think the language is so beautiful in Sarita's piece as well, but they both come at it with such stylistic difference. And in Diana's piece, there is such a lens of the workplace, a lot of it from a waitress's point of view. So how it feels to be a waitress at a bar in this day and age. And some of these experiences are experiences from the 90s when, you know, we weren't having the kind of conversation we're having now. And I mean, up until two years ago, like it was so much harder. I think that is one of the accomplishments of the Me Too movement so far is that it is a little bit in at least some places more legitimate for a woman to say, hey, wait, that's not okay. And it wasn't. We all know that. We waited tables and were attending bars and et cetera, et cetera. And those environments, we were just expected to be okay with a boss touching you or saying something inappropriate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. When you received the pieces that dealt with it in a more oblique way, mm-hmm. how did you approach those? Like, did you have an editorial instinct that you had to fight where you were like, I do want to hear the story. Give me the story. Like, Caitlin Greenidge's piece is very interesting because it is essentially an essay of refusal. Mm-hmm. But I can see, as an editor, wanting to push against that in some way and wanting the writer to take the step and let the reader in to that experience. Yeah, specifically with that essay, we did do a little bit of that. I Mm -hmm. think we were asking, you know, it's so Caitlin Greenidge's brilliant essay in this book is called Your Story is Yours. And so think about what you just asked me. The paragraph, I think it's the last paragraph in the essay. She's basically listing, Caitlin is listing a bunch of people who are not entitled to your story. So to be an editor on the other (laughs) side and be like, but give us your story, though, is super complex, right? Right. And I have to say that that paragraph to me was so powerful. That was there, if my memory serves me right. I think it was there in the very first draft. And that was so powerful. And, you know, now in doing events on tour in the last week, I have to say that's been one of the ones that have been coming up because I'm reading always with lineups of people who are based in that given city where we're doing an event who are reading a little bit from their own work and choosing a selection from the book as a way to celebrate the anthology. And so it's been fascinating to see. I have to say by now almost all the pieces have been read, which Mm -hmm. has been such a sort of happy making thing for me. But it's been interesting. It's big lineup. So each night is like a bunch of selections from the book. And it's been interesting to see which ones people pick. And this specifically, Caitlin's piece, and then that paragraph has been read by now, I think, three times in different voices, and it's been very powerful to listen to. So I think that hits a chord, that hits a note in some way. So yeah, I mean, I do think you're also touching on something really interesting, because it was it was a sensitive editorial process. I think that I have to be honest and say that my aim was to make these texts, of course, as good as they can be, but it was also to sort of be as respectful and mindful to the writer I was working with mm-hmm. as myself as the editor, the team at McSweeney's, of course, we could always say like, okay, so that's not going to work for us. But if we're going to take a piece, then we're going to try to make it work on its own terms rather than sort of force a writer to go somewhere where that wasn't the intention she put forth in that given piece. And also whenever I'm being asked about editorial process of this book, it feels very important to also credit the team at McSweeney's and specifically Daniel Levin Becker, who did a lot of the actual Mm -hmm. editing. I think that's something that people don't always talk about is how being an editor on this type of project involves so much more than the actual editing and not a whole lot of actual editing. And so I did with some of the pieces, I went back and forth myself quite a bit. I think for me, it really depended since I'm a writer predominantly, and I haven't done a whole lot of editing at all before this project. I really kind of I trusted Daniel, I trusted the team at McSweeney's and I only took and I proved each round I was very involved in the process, but I let them lead with the exception of a few pieces where I just my writer self was like, Oh, I can see what this writer is trying to do. 
and then I took the lead on those pieces. But I think that's important to acknowledge too. In general, it's been so important to me to acknowledge, you know, as I do in the forward, Christina Kearns, who was the executive director at that time at McSweeney's, She's not anymore, and I've been working with Amanda Yuli, who's incredible. This book has had two mamas at McSweeney's, like exactly half of the way through that switch happened. But, you know, this book wouldn't exist without Christina. It was her vision, and it's, I think it's always important, but especially with this kind of project, not to be erasing any woman's contribution. Mm-hmm. It feels especially important. Was it difficult to have a man edit these? <laughs> you might. You know, it's interesting. First of all, I would say no, and I think that's to Daniel's credit, we also, I think maybe you guys have interacted with Jonathan Maunder, our publicist, also a cis man, a cis British man at that. I think that it's been very helpful to also have a couple of men on the team that's otherwise comprised of mostly cis women. And I do think that when men are versed in this conversation, when they care to listen, when they know also to let women take the lead, then their voices can be so helpful to this conversation. And I think that's what I experienced here. The sort of detail behind the scenes is that Daniel is Christina Kearns's partner, mm-hmm. husband now. When Christina and I were debating actually that question early on, and you know, but she knew Daniel pretty well one should hope, considering she married him. And so she felt confident that that would work out. And if it hadn't, you know, then we would have changed it. But Mm -hmm. it really did. Although I will say I was the one communicating the notes to the authors in part Mm -hmm. for this reason. I'm wondering, looking through the pieces or reading through all of them and spending time with them, did you start to get a different idea of the kind of quote-unquote toxic masculinity Mm. that would lead to some situations that are depicted in this book? Were you like saturated with some of that? And did you have new thoughts about it? I mean, I've been thinking about that since I was, I don't know, I want to say six years old. And then in some ways, I think since undergrad in Tel Aviv, where I was a gender studies major, and that's kind of the most significant turning point in my life as a feminist and in my understanding of the world of gender bias and gender dynamics. So in some way, I'm having new thoughts every day. And in some ways, I haven't had a new thought since 1994 or something. Um, But I will say that I think one of the things, yes, saturated is such a good word, I think, to describe my experience, both in editing and working on the book, and then now in curating and putting together this tour that we're doing, which also involves a lot of events where I'm not there. So a lot of community events. So I have been saturated with in sort of conversations with so many writers based in so many cities who have just stepped up to help promote the book that they're not part of, who happen to have several pieces to choose from about this topic, because so many writers have been writing about this topic, certainly in the last two years, also before that, because it's been our experience for so long. And so I have been, and that's something that I've been hyper aware of in the last few days, just in sort of protecting my own energy, because I didn't, I was sort of very focused on the practical side of it before leaving New York for tour, because there was so many sort of moving parts to this machine that I forgot, or maybe chose not to think about the emotional effect of being saturated in the stories of toxic masculinity and the stories of women's pain every night. It really started to take a toll on my physical body in the last couple of days. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK in sunny Studio City. We've been speaking with Shelley Oria, editor of the new collection Indelible in the Hippocampus. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first we have this week's book recommendation.
So we have Taya Albrecht on the line with us. Taya is a critically acclaimed writer. Her first book was The Tiger's Wife, but her latest novel is called Inland. And Taya is on the line to recommend a book for us. Taya, what book are you going to recommend? I'd like to recommend Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay-Brenya. Okay, and what brought you to this book? I've heard good things about uh, it. It just it got stunning reviews. It did. And I'm always really curious when people play with the short story form. And it is a collection of short stories. Mm-hmm. And it's some of the most extraordinary and deeply probing material that I've read in a really long time. Tell me, how do you approach a short story collection? Do you just go straight Ooh. through? Do you pick one, then jump to another? I have a tendency to start and go straight through, but about halfway, for reasons that are completely unclear to me, I'll start to skip around. Me too. Usually because you too? Yeah. That's so funny. But why, tell me why, why do you, you think do, you do it. it? <laughs> Jinx. No, you you go first. I think there's something about the, the wholeness of a short story that, that prompts revisiting it. So as soon as I start to go back over the short stories that I've already read, it breaks the, the notion of order, right? Yeah. And so I can get through two, maximum three, without doubling back and reading one of them again. But as soon as I do that, the spell is broken, and now it's just free fall. Yeah. Interesting. I think I do it for the opposite reason, which is to get a sense of progress. So I actually skip ahead. Yeah. Maybe it's the editor instinct. Okay. So, Taya, what are the stories like in this collection? What are the stories like in Friday Black? The stories are wickedly funny and profoundly moving and they force a real reckoning with race in America. Well, that sounds really good. Will you tell us the title again and the author? Friday Black by Nana Kwame Ajay-Brenya. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Taya Abrecht. Her latest book is called Inland. Thank you, Taya. Thank you so much. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We now return to our conversation with Shelley Oria, editor of Indelible in the Hippocampus. Because I have to say, just sitting, reading the anthology and going through the stories, and they're, you know, they're stories that are somewhat familiar to me, and then mm-hmm. there are things that are just a, a nightmare extreme of, of what I hadn't experienced, right. but just when you read through it all together, it's like very intense, <laughs> you know, it's very intense and it, it is kind of like a, it has a, a nightmarish quality at times. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's appropriate to say I'm happy to hear you say that. I do think that's true. I think it's meant to be intense. I think it's a nightmare. The reality that has yielded this book is a nightmare. And so I, I wanted this book to capture that. And at the same time, at least our intention We worked pretty hard to also rhythmically sort of punctuate that, both in terms of the order of the book, where the poetry goes, where silence goes, which maybe would be less evident in the galley, Medea, but um, in the the final book, which is why it's so funny to anyone who's had a copy of the galley, like it is a third of the size of the final book, even though it's only missing one essay that didn't make it in time for the galley, Paisley Richtel's, and yet it is, the actual book is so much more robust, really because of silence, because we took the time to think about where we needed white pages 
pause where we needed to sort of give the reader a moment to breathe and kind of signal that on the page. And that's exactly for that reason, Kate, that you're bringing up. That sort of goes to the stylistic diversity that I was talking about earlier. I think it's a different experience in terms of that nightmare to read a personal account versus something that just makes you think. It's different to read a piece that even if it's pretty intense, but that punctuates with quite a bit of humor, which we have several of those in the in the book. And so we really kind of thought about where those go. Mm-hmm. Where are we making you laugh, hopefully? And where are you where are we asking you to take a moment and breathe? And and still I think for some readers it might be too much to read all of it at once or all of it at all. And I and that's okay. And I hope people will just do uh, engage with this book in the way that works for them. As you said earlier and as you say in the forward here, you were sort of rushing to get this done because you were afraid that this movement was going to fizzle out. It didn't, luckily, or... Uh, hasn't luckily. yet. <laughs> yeah, it's, it hasn't yet. How has your understanding of the movement mm-hmm. changed as you've worked on this book? Yeah. Because there's also been sort of different waves of it, different reactions to it. There's a, now a, a, a section uh, or a group that thinks that Me Too has just gone too far mm-hmm. and it's right so you and and even with people who've worked on the movement itself have sort of backed off a little bit and so as in terms of the movement itself like mm-hmm. how have you understood it as it's gone on I think with so many of these questions I feel like okay so we have two hours yeah. right, for this <laughs> yeah. answer because I have so much to say and then I like start talking and then I'm like oh okay I'm gonna stop talking because I've been talking no, for a few minutes um, so then I don't remember all the threads but but let me um, try to sort of collect my thoughts on this one I think first of all with any movement and any revolution we're gonna see some waves we're gonna see some criticism we're, that's that's part of the life of any movement that has meant anything or yielded any kind of or made a difference in in the history of time really and so I'm personally not that afraid of that. I do think that uh, one of the biggest problems of the Me Too movement, which honestly is the problem of so many movements, is that while it, it is at its core, at its DNA, about fighting in at least in part exclusion, right? Like that is part of like everything that is hap- that women experience in part is because they're being excluded from the from sort of being considered a full human being, which is a cis white dude. And so it is so much about fighting that, and yet it started as a very excluding type of movement. And in the very early days, we were all being given this idea of who is the harassed slash abused woman, and she was, you know, a cis white beautiful woman actress. I did say white, right? Mm -hmm. So um, blonde maybe can be added to that in many of the cases. And so I think so many women back then were like, oh, these are experiences that I have known my whole life that they're describing, but this movement describes parameters that I fall outside of. And so where am I in relation to this movement? And that's certainly something that because this book started so early on right around those days when those were the stories kind of forming the narrative that it was very important to everyone involved in this book that we put something different out there um, and a much larger variety of voices. I don't think we have resolved this issue or even close to that, but I do think the movement now is a little bit more inclusive than it once was, mm-hmm. or at least I can say that we we as a culture, I mean, not just we in this book, have put out a lot of stories for many, many women. And I hope that at least some people are starting to get the idea that it has nothing to do with really with what a woman looks like. It only has to do with presenting as a woman in public spaces of any of any kind and in, and in many 
private spaces as well. Mm -hmm. And so I think that also connects kind of to Kate's earlier question. I think that's one of the ways that maybe I changed my view of the world in some small way. And And I think that's the experience of so many women and so many people is this understanding that really at its core, it's every woman. Um, And it's not that every woman has been abused necessarily or even assaulted necessarily, but even those numbers we now know are so much greater than we had, that we ever knew before, definitely so much greater than anything being reported. But this understanding that if we're thinking just of gender dynamics, of power dynamics, of experiencing an imbalance in the workplace and paying a price for being a woman, for being paid less, for how we pay the price if there is sexual tension, if someone is interested and we're not, if someone is interested and we are but don't want to pursue it for various reasons, and on and on and on. If we think of that, it is every woman. And so it's less the point to me. We as a culture, therefore, have made the gender dynamics toxic. So it's even less about whether a given man is toxic or not, whether they know they're being toxic even, but there's toxicity in our shared spaces. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, especially as someone who's been studying, you know, if this is not, this is, to me, me too seems like an outpouring of feminism mm-hmm. and um, of women's rights, and, and it, but yet it goes further and it is perhaps slightly different and it seems like very much about accountability and also about consent and how we move forward as a culture and how we kind of move out of entrenched patterns. And there's a very subtle piece that finishes one of the essays in here about a boy and a girl being like shouted out to kiss and everyone's going to take a picture of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Courtney's offness is yeah, the teacher. Yeah. And I, and that struck home for me, one, because I have a child. So it's like, oh, how do you start to teach children about this from a young age? And um, how do you kind of fight against a culture that's already trying to pigeonhole them into that? And then, right. And and as the narrator says, like, she doesn't stop what's happening. She doesn't want to be a buzzkill mm-hmm. <laughs> or make too big a deal of it. But yeah, I, I, I guess a, another question is like, how do you see us moving forward? Like from this moment, like what mm-hmm. what would be the next steps in terms of how we keep on expanding it? Yeah, that's a question that comes up a lot. Um, That's a really, really interesting one. I'll get to that in a moment. But first, I I do think that's such an interesting point you make about um, that moment in Courtney's Offness's essay in the book. And I always think of, or not always, but sometimes I think of that kind of um, juxtaposed with Samantha Hunt's essay in the book, because they both, both of these essays are sort of looking at this moment through the lens of motherhood, at least in part, both of the essays are doing more than that. But they are kind of applying that lens, which is a fascinating one. And what's been really interesting to think about is uh, Samantha has three daughters, and uh, she writes about that in the essay. Courtney has two boys, and she writes about that and for, and how that lens. I'm going to be super reductive now, but really Samantha is thinking about how to protect her daughters in this world, and Courtney is thinking how to raise men who won't harm. And that's the difference, right, in a nutshell. How do we... How do we move forward? Gosh, I don't know. (laughs) That's the thing, too. There have been, like, many questions where I've had to pause before I give my opinion and say for a few times, I don't know shit. (laughs) I am a writer. I put together a book. Uh, That book has the words me too on the cover. So it's totally legit to be asking me these questions. And sometimes I feel like it's totally legit for me to say my opinion as if it matters. But it doesn't really I will say that one of the things to me that I don't think any of us mean it that way, and I've asked that same question, I think it's an important question to pose what's what's next. It's essential, in fact. But I do think that there's some sort of 
quiet presupposition in that question that is like good, good buddies with the haven't, the hasn't the Me Too movement gone too far? Mm-hmm. And again, I don't think any of us are even aware of that necessarily when we say it, but I think there's a way that it then plays out in the discourse that those two kind of work well together. Mm-hmm. And so I, my answer to that has been, I mean, of course, the next, hopefully, we need to figure out ways. And again, God, God I don't know how to do that. But then we have to figure out ways for institutional and legal, legal change for sort of our telling our stories to kind of translate to a real uh, reckoning that also translates to to that next level that can actually make a difference long term in our lives and our children's lives. But I also think that I don't think in our time it's ever going to be not radical to share our stories. I don't think it's ever going to stop being essential. I also think we're all so, in terms of our kind of neural pathways, are so programmed to the old way of thinking. This is so new. The way that we've all been talking about this is only now two years old, which is why, you know, publishing is a pretty slow beast. That's why all these Me Too books are coming out now, because it takes about a year and a half to two years to publish a book. We're at the two-year point now. So this is really the, in many ways, even in terms of putting books out. We're so in the very early stages of a reckoning. This is a quote from the book from Keto Ziegler's essay. And so I think that it is one of the most ridiculous statements and they come out of fears when people say, hasn't the Me Too movement gone too far? I think it hasn't begun to go at all. Um, It's like it is sort of a, a toddler is a two-year-old a toddler I don't know I don't think yeah, it's, it okay so it's I think that's exactly what it is yeah. we're starting to maybe figure out how to walk um that is that is what I think about that and I and I think therefore you know my hope for the book is to engage many people that maybe haven't been part of the conversation but it's also maybe even predominantly to say to a lot of women who have been hearing this nonsense about hasn't the movement gone too far to say let's let's not listen to that noise we're only getting started. Um, we're here to publish stories, to tell mm-hmm. the stories. I think this is always going to be, if we're thinking of legal and institutional change, if we're thinking of any type of ladder, any type of, type of structure, that first step better be real steady, real strong for us to be able to take the next, for people to be able, for politicians, for people to be able, who can lead that kind of change, which publishers cannot, for them to be able to do their job, this first step has to be steady. And that means keeping, like keep going continuing to tell our stories. So this morning I was listening to the new reporting that was coming out in the New York Times Mm -hmm. about um, Lisa Bloom's involvement in the Harvey Weinstein case and Gloria Allred's. uh, And Lisa Bloom is a a prominent lawyer who has defended many victims um, of sexual assault. Gloria Allred, of course, is her mother, uh, known probably even more so for um, being a big defender. And something that this has gotten me thinking about is how how we understand women who are involved mm-hmm. in these stories. I mean, f- and of course, we also have Jeffrey Epstein and his and Gillian Maxwell. Mm-hmm. I think that's how you say her name. I'm not 100 percent sure, but Gilan, yeah, I've heard different pronunciations. Yeah, but but mm-hmm. he had this right hand woman, right, mm-hmm. sort of assisting him. I know that's the creepiest part of that story to it me. It is. Yeah. It's very creepy. And and I it's a difficult thing I think to square because it feels like a deep betrayal of some mm-hmm. of some kind. And of course these women are figuring out survival yeah. in the mm-hmm. page in the patriarchy. Exactly. exactly. So that's one way to think about it. I wonder how you approach that mm-hmm. conundrum. Yeah. It's, it is a big so one, hard. right? I yeah. know. When I was a student at in uh, Tel Aviv University many years ago in the for undergrad in the gender studies program, that sort of thing came up a lot. 
And I have to say, like, I, I was uh, my first, this is maybe sort of going beyond the scope of the question, but I was a theater major. And that first year, I was only a theater major. And then for really practical reasons, I, need to sw- I needed to switch to a double major. So I switched to the gender studies program as a woman who did not identify as a feminist. I grew up in a household that's sort of interesting in terms of gender dynamics. My dad's an actor and my mom's a lawyer. So they were both very active, very hands-on parents. But um, my dad often was the one at home kind of when I got home from school, was cooking a lot. Like they definitely have a distribution of labor in the household that isn't sort of gender-based in the stereotypical way. And my mom back then was like, uh, I mean, she still is a very strong woman, but back then she had no understanding of feminist theory as I under- and as I have made her understand it in the years since. And she was just like, you just, you're just a strong woman. You don't need anyone. And somehow that excluded a definition of being a feminist. All to say, I did not identify as a feminist. And that very much changed in that first semester in that first year. And so that once that changed, I think I had a lot of compassion to the women who were saying all kinds of things that really back then that was so fresh on my mind. I had said those things mm-hmm. a few months before. I just had a sort of almost one moment of kind of putting on new glasses and being like, holy fuck, like, oh. And once you get it, you just get it. You can't go back once you actually see it. But I have a lot of compassion for the women that don't see it that way or haven't seen it yet for various reasons having to do with their own mothers, with their upbringing, with their experiences, with what they've been exposed to, with what they feel safe allowing themselves to feel or think. And I had this good friend at the at the program in Tel Aviv. We would both sort of struggle with that. And, and sometimes these auditoriums would be pretty big. And whenever a woman would say something about, but, you know, like, for instance, in Israel, you have to serve in the military and women serve. Uh, it's mandatory service. That's a whole other fucked up thing I can talk about for a whole other program. <laughs> women serve for two years and men serve for three. So the sort of anti-feminist, that, that's like a common argument in Israel would be like, well, but you also, would you want to serve for three years? Like, do so you want to be a woman? You want to enjoy the benefits. So things like that. And my friend and I got in this habit of lift, like we we had the word compassion written on a piece of paper, a pretty big one, so we could see it across a big auditorium and we would just like lift it up so the other person could see. And that would be like our way to remind each other. And I think that's my answer to that mm-hmm. conundrum is try, and this is, we can't always do that, but try to, to come at these women from a place and using a lens of compassion as much mm-hmm. as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, exactly as you said in your question, they're navigating the same bullshit that we do. They've come up with oftentimes a really, really disturbing, fucked up mechanism, like in the Epstein story, to deal with it. I'm not saying we should forgive it by any means. But when we just unpack the story and try to understand it, I think the lens of compassion can be the most useful one. What kind of um, impact has Me Too had in Israel? Or has it had one? Oh, it definitely has. And in the sort of strange way of Hebrew, people actually call it Me Too, <laughs> um, which is which has a little, I think they tried in the very early days, the Hebrew version of that, and it didn't catch. But so yeah, it's it's absolutely, um, it's, a, it's such a global movement. That's been, fa- that's part of what's been so powerful, I think, and fascinating about this movement. I mean, really, Israel is sort of a whole other show if, to talk about that. But I would say in this context, I am so happy that it's that it has arrived there because at least to my experience, um, because of the military, because of the occupation, it is such a macho culture in many ways that that in some ways I like better because at least it's 
visible. I think so much of it is is true here too, but men wouldn't necessarily say things or act in a way that kind of puts the problem right in front of your face. So there's something to be on, you know, it depends on what day you ask me. Some days mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, I don't need to see it. Thank you. I'd rather you hide it. And I know you, you know, cis white American dude, I know what you think, but we don't need to have it in the space between us. Mm-hmm. And other days, especially in Tel Aviv, sometimes I'm like, okay, I prefer it that way. At least there's no confusion. You just said the most sexist thing to me and you don't even care but at least we know we know there's no uh, confusion but for that reason I think that is that is a culture that could very much use that introspection and it has begun to do so mm-hmm. well I guess we're all introspecting these days and, and yes. that's a, a good thing um, so thank you so much Shelley Oria for coming on our show thank you both so much this is so lovely thank, thank you, you. Shelley We've been speaking with Shelley Oria. She is the editor of a new collection of multi-genre pieces. The collection is called Indelible in the Hippocampus, Writings from the Me Too Movement. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARP Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Our theme song is by composer Imogen Teasley. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 